We are recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We wish to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening. Hi everybody, I'm Priscilla. And I'm Elise. Welcome to Novel Feelings, where we discuss representations of mental health issues in fiction novels. Today we're actually doing an interview with the author Kay Kerr. So we actually reviewed Kay's book, Please Don't Hug Me, on our blog um, just a couple of weeks ago, actually. We both read it fairly recently. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, we didn't have the capacity to do a full uh, review podcast about it, so we wrote it up as a blog piece and reached out to Kay and, yeah, she was generous enough with her time to give us an interview, which is really exciting. Yeah, it's such a fun interview, but... Before we talk more about that, um, if you haven't heard of Please Don't Hug Me, it's a book about an autistic teenage girl, Erin, who is on the verge of completing year 12 and is navigating high school while also coping with the aftermath of a significant event. Kay actually has a new book coming out too called Social Cue, which is due for release at the end of September 2021. We're recording this in September, but by the time this episode is out, Social Cue will be out, so remember to go and grab a copy from your local bookstore. Before we launch into the interview itself, please keep in mind that we are trained psychologists, but this podcast should not be taken as direct therapeutic advice. Please consult a professional for more specific and tailored advice. There will be no spoilers for Social Cue. However, we will be spoiling what happens in Please Don't Hug Me in the second half of this interview. We'll signpost where that is so that you can tune out if you want to. And also just keep in mind that this interview has been edited for length. Yes. And a couple of quick content notes. So we will be discussing topics such as autism, grief, and anxiety today. Yeah. So let's get started with our questions. So Kay, welcome. I'm really pleased to have you here. I'm wondering if you can tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Great. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm an author and a freelance writer based up on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Um, My job before that was as a journalist um, and I was writing the first draft of Please Don't Hug Me, which is my first book uh, when I got an autism diagnosis, which I guess changed the way I wrote about my protagonist who I soon realized was also autistic. Such an interesting way of self-discovery and developing your book as well. And you've got a second book coming out. Uh, It's called Social Cue, and I believe it's being released at the end of this month. Can you tell us a bit about the book? Yeah, so Social Cue is uh, another YA, but this time it's a a romantic coming-of-age story. I really wanted to put an autistic girl at the heart of a romance. Um, And so it's about an 18-year-old girl called Zoe, and she's just finished high school. Um, She's at university, and she's starting an internship at an online media company company and um she writes a piece about how she's had a lack of dating experience and joining on to to dating apps feels a little bit like jumping in the deep end with no sort of previous experience and you know she writes about nobody having had any romantic interest in her and when that piece goes viral these people from her past come um and reconnect with her saying that they did have romantic interest in her but she had missed the signs so um for an assignment, she decides she's going to go back and reconnect with each of these people and see what the signs were that she missed and see if there's any hope of, of I guess, reconnecting and finding a spark of love. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Yeah, really looking forward to reading it. I think a lot of people would have been through some something like this, maybe not to the point of actually doing the investigative piece, but going, oh, what do you mean you you liked me back in the day or that kind of thing. Cause a lot of the times I think we grow up and completely think that we're unlovable or nobody cares about us or could see us that way only to find out down the track that that was not true and have your own expectations challenged in a way. Yeah. And I, I thought it was a really, well, it started off, I guess, as a sort of quirky, sweet way to um, unpack those missed social cues and um, misconnections through that autistic lens. But I think, like you said, it's something that a lot of people um, can connect with and resonate with because, I don't know, teenage years are, are tricky and, uh, yeah, navigating that space is, can be awkward and horrible and amazing and a whole bunch of other things. So it was a lot of fun to write. 
Yeah. yeah. Can I also just mention I like the pun in the title? That <laughs> Q is spelled Q-U-E-U-E instead of the usual C-U-E. <laughs> My partner will be so thrilled because he came up with that. Um, so I have to tell him that. <laughs> was impressed. But then I realized that um, in talking to somebody else, they don't really use the word Q in that sense in the U.S. Yeah, that was an interesting discovery post having written and published the book. <laughs> Well, we appreciate it anyway. So what inspired you to write this particular story? I think with Please Don't Hug Me, which was very much felt like an anti-romance book um, in the way I sort of addressed the relationship in that story, I wanted to go in a different direction and, like I said, explore a little bit um, about you know, autism and and romance and dating. Uh, Also, I started writing it during the bushfires at the end of 2019 and the start of 2020. And then I was writing it, you know, into March, April of 2020 as we entered a pandemic and all of the movies and shows and books that I wanted to consume for comfort were romance stories. That was just what I leaned into really heavily. So um, it it suited me and it was comfortable and it was a nice escape to also be writing something that felt, you know, made me feel how those movies and books made me feel. Um, but, yeah, it was, very, it was a very deliberate choice to want to put an autistic girl at the centre of yeah. a, a rom-com sort of story because I think, you know, there are a few books that do it and if, um, but, you know, it is slim pickings and I want there to be more more of those stories because I think if an autistic girl or autistic person picks up the story to read it, I want them to sort of see themselves as the protagonist in a story. Yeah, lovely. And I love that this is about a a girl who's finished high school because I feel like there's not a lot of those stories in YA in general. How different was that from writing Erin who was just finishing high school? Yeah, it felt like a natural progression, even though they're two separate characters with different stories, but it felt natural to want to explore that space, especially because it is, it still very much feels like in the YA space to me that sort of just finished high school processing well, your experiences of high school. And especially for Zoe in Social Cue, she had been through a lot of bullying, which was something that a lot of readers contacted me and spoke to me about with Please Don't Hug Me autistic young people that was you know a very common experience for them so that through the connecting with readers I really wanted to explore how that impacts somebody but I didn't really want to you know write bullying on the page that wasn't something that was um, attractive to me what I wanted to do was to look at the after effects of that to, to take her out of that framework of high school she's no longer in that setting so she's no longer experiencing that, but what are the, the sort of longer term effects and how she goes about, I guess, rebuilding. And um, yeah, I guess she kind of wants to reinvent herself, but that is sort of, she she realizes, I guess, through that process that she doesn't actually need to reinvent herself. She just needs to, um, I guess, become more comfortable and confident in who she already is. Yeah, sounds like a very important message for young readers to be taking away, particularly those that are, well, of of course, who might be autistic, but also who might be dealing with that transitional period in their life, moving from high school to a first job or to university or something else as well. Um, I just wanted to, you mentioned before how comforting romance stories have been during all the challenges of the past 18 to 24 months or so, uh, can relate. (laughs) Strongly, yes. Strongly relate. (laughs) Yeah. That's just, yeah, that's just been, that and nostalgia, I guess, is the other thing. Like you kind of lean into those nostalgic books and movies as well. Yeah. And can I also, this is a tangent, but can I mention (laughs) the romance and please don't hug me? When that, when Aaron's boyfriend first showed up, I was immediately like, oh my God, red flags. (laughs) Please run away from him. (laughs) flags. Yeah, he was a walking red flag for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think you've already answered our next question a little bit, but I'll ask it again in case there's anything we didn't uh, cover. But uh, we were wondering about the writing process for the two books. So how was the writing process for Social Cue different from Please Don't Hug Me, if it was different? Yeah, it, they were worlds apart, to be honest. And mm-hmm. I think part of that was the content, but part of it was um, – you know, my background was as a journalist, so I didn't study creative writing and the, the craft of um, of writing a story. So when I was 
coming to the page with Please Don't Hug Me. It was very much voice and character and sort of emotionally driven. Um, but finding the sort of framework and the structure of it was a real trial and error sort of process. So there were a lot of drafts and a lot of rewriting and just a lot of time that went into turning the idea in my head into something that actually resembled a novel or a book that was on a shelf. So um, that was just grueling in the hours and the work because I hadn't done it before. And then I think also going through the editing process once was really helpful because I knew then um, what to expect, you know, you've got your structural edit and then you've got your copy edit and then you've got your line edit. Just, you know, I struggle when I don't know when something is unknown, um, which I think is, you know, probably part of being autistic is I like to know the steps and I like to know exactly how they're going to go. And so as, as supportive and amazing as my publisher has been, I think it really was the act of having done it once that, that gave me the sort of security and confidence, I guess, to, to tackle it again. And it just meant that the second time around the editing process was a lot smoother because I kind of had the idea of, of how to shape, um, yeah, how to shape a narrative and, and what sort of moments I needed to hit. And I had a little bit more of a structure, I guess, as well with, um, you know, these five people from her past that kind of created a bit of a, a timeline to follow where I was writing from date to date that she went on and exploring sort of each moment with that. So I think, yeah, it was, it was a lot easier, but I don't want that to make it sound like it was easy either. Like you still, you're climbing the mountain every time when you write a new book, I think, and you're you're learning from the start again. Um, So there was a lot that came up that I wasn't expecting, but overall, definitely it was um, just in the way my brain works a more more smooth process. Yeah. Was it a a faster process as well out of interest? Uh, yeah, yeah, it definitely was. I, for some reason, the the spark of this story, um, and like I said, because it had a little bit of a framework to it, um, getting the first draft down was a much more linear process. Whereas when I started writing Please Don't Hug Me, I didn't even really know what I was writing. I knew that I, I wanted to process my feelings about high school and I had this voice of this character. Um, I thought I was kind of writing a, you know, a story about a girl that was socially anxious and, and you know, exploring all of the the ways that she struggled in high school. And then I guess getting my autism diagnosis and going back and re sort of readjusting the story, even though most of what I wanted to include about her being autistic, it was already there. I just needed the language and the understanding to sort of flesh it out. So yeah, that process just, it was long and it was emotional because I was, you know, processing in real time, my own diagnosis and my own memories and experiences as well as um, doing that on the page. Yeah, that would have been quite a journey for both you as a writer and yourself as a person as well. I read your blog post on your website about how Social Key was written and is being published in the middle of a pandemic. Um, How has that been for you? I think when I signed the contract for it last year, I was very optimistic about where we would be in September 2021. Uh, Overly optimistic, I would say. But having done a pandemic launch once and sort of understanding, you know, Zoom events and interviews and that kind of thing, I kind of felt like that was a nice warm up last year with Please Don't Hug Me, not being thrown straight into in-person events because those sort of settings are not what is, I guess, naturally the most comfortable for me. But at this stage, I do kind of feel like, okay, I want to have a book launch now (laughs) this time around, an in-person one. Um, But I don't know. The the way my brain works now, I just feel like even when things are booked in, there is that little feeling of, yeah, but it could be cancelled. And I think I'm a little bit more okay with that and an understanding of that. And anything that goes ahead will feel like a bonus Um, and, and readers connecting with it. Um, hopefully that will still happen regardless of whether or not we have in-person events. So, yeah, I feel still optimistic but maybe not as uh, sort of bright-eyed about it as, you know, I thought by 2021, late 2021, it'll all be over. There'll be no more pandemics. So yeah. <laughs> definitely been yeah. proved wrong. <laughs> yeah. So the next thing we wanted to ask about messages. So what are some of the main things that you'd like readers to take away from your books, particularly in terms of um, the autism representation that you have on the page? 
Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I always say about wanting people to take away from my books is to enjoy them because I read for enjoyment and that's what I hope that anybody who picks it up is going to take away. But in terms of um, specifically the autism representation, I think um, people often have, you know, a quite stereotypical understanding of autism or they might understand autism as a list of traits um, and not how that might look in a person and um, particularly now having a second book, it's nice because I can explore a little bit more um, different traits. You know, my two characters don't, you know, their autistic traits don't show up in the same way. So I can explore um, just that variation and just the person as a whole, as opposed to them being a list of autistic traits. That's kind of what I want to do is humanize it and just normalize it um, and uh, give people yeah, a sense of connection and understanding and um, empathy, all of those things I think can only be good. Yeah, lovely. A metaphor that we've used a lot, um, well, I've used a lot with my clients is the color spectrum wheel, that it's a wheel rather than a line so that if you've met one person on that spectrum, you've only met the one person. Yeah, and I think the thing that sometimes people don't understand as well is that how you present or how your autistic traits um, present themselves, it's not a static thing either. Like my my coping abilities um, fluctuate depending on a whole bunch of things, whether that's, you know, sleep or um, how much stress I've been under, how much socializing I've been doing. So, you know, what might be stressful and hard for me, you know, in terms of sensory input one day might be different on another day. So it, it's just, yeah, it's not a static level that you're at and that's what you're at for life it's yeah it's more fluid and it's more yeah Yeah. different to that I guess yeah great you've been a wonderful advocate for autism representation in YA fiction apart from generally more nuanced representations um is there anything that you would like to see more of in other people's books yeah I think um Mm. I would like to see, and something I've been exploring a little bit um, in both of my books, but something I would like to see more of is um, community, I guess, amongst autistic, neurodivergent or otherwise disabled people, specifically young people because I write YA. So in that space, I would like to see stories that, yeah, that celebrate the community that can be found between um, people with those shared experiences. Um, I I run a writing group with um, a group of young autistic teenagers and just seeing the way that they interact with each other, it it makes me wish that I'd had that kind of community at a younger age um, and self-understanding as well, but it makes me really hopeful um, and feel really positive for for the future generations of autistic or otherwise disabled young people to be able to connect. And uh, I know you mentioned earlier the desire to see more autistic representation in romance storylines as well. And I think that's, yeah, really something I'd love to see more of. I'm, I'm not as uh, versed in the romance literature as Priscilla is, but <laughs> <laughs> of course we know that um, autistic people are underrepresented there too. Yeah, we've got Helen Huang, who's like the queen of romance, writing incredible, incredible autistic representation in her books. But, um, yeah, uh, there is not a lot other than that out there. Um, But I think give us autistic characters in all genres, like crime novels, Mm -hmm. horror books, like all of it. I'd love to just see autistic characters um, and not necessarily the story being about them being autistic, just existing in, in other spaces I think would be great. Absolutely. Yeah, The Good Doctor just popped into my mind as a, a poor representation, though it's not a book uh, form. Yeah. But it's very much a story that, I don't know, it doesn't feel, I don't know if you've ever watched it, Kay, but it doesn't feel I good. haven't. Yeah. I feel like I've been burnt a little bit um, yeah. too many times by tuning into things with supposed autistic representation and then mm. ending up being quite upset, uh, like the atypical or something that, a lot yeah, of people yeah. said, oh, you should watch Atypical because it was, you yeah. know, he's a young adult, so sort of in the same mm. sphere as my characters and, yeah, I found that to be, um, yeah, yeah, it just, just didn't ring true to me or it just it felt like it was that sort of old narrative mm. of this is how much of a burden this character is to their family. That's something that's played yeah. out quite a bit, I think. So I've just I've kind of avoided it after that. 
um, haven't seen Sia's movie, haven't watched The Good Doctor. <laughs> yeah. No, don't. Because <laughs> I like medical drama, so I've watched that one, but it's very much, um, you know, how capable can he be as a doctor given he can't communicate and then a, a lot of the plot revolves around his perceived shortcomings, I suppose, and that's really not comfortable to watch. Sometimes they can also lean really heavily into, but they have this amazing ability and they're like got a superpower Mm. because they're so good at numbers or, you know, whatever Mm. it is. And, you know, that doesn't ring true either. It's not, I don't feel like I resonate with the tragedy narrative or the superhero narrative. It kind of feels Mm. like it, both of those kind of miss out all of the, the parts in between, I guess. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, in more ter- in terms of more positive representation, <laughs> I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for books or or other media, I guess, for books maybe um, with good autistic representation or um, even just other other themes or ideas that you've really enjoyed. Yeah, so my first go to um, in YA is always Peter Liars Reading Normal. I don't know if you've read that. It's by Anna Waitley. Um, it's on my bookshelf. Haven't quite gotten there yet. <laughs> it's incredible. Whenever you do, it'll be such a treat. She has written such a beautiful character in Peter. Um, and I feel like they're a very different book from Please Don't Hug Me, but they feel complimentary or they feel like they're on sort of a similar, similar vein to each other. Um, and then. In terms of Clem Basto's Late Bloomer is a memoir um, that was recently released that's really incredible in the way that Clem sort of unpacks all of the different autistic traits and how they they showed up in their life and, and it's really funny and it's um, just beautiful writing and, and really interesting read because Clem's had such an interesting life, um, so that was really good. And then... In terms of, I guess, other representation, mental health or, or grief-related, I really loved How It Feels to Float by Helena Fox. I don't know if you read that yeah, one. Yeah, oh, I has. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think uh, when we interviewed Wei Chim earlier in the year, she recommended it and I picked it up after that. And Yeah, it was a really beautiful book. Yeah, and I think there were similarities, I guess, um, into the way – autistic shutdown kind of feels like it exists in a similar space to that disassociation. Mm -hmm. I just felt there were a lot of similarities um, Mm -hmm. for me personally in the way that I read that book and the way that I experienced um, shutdown. So that felt like, yeah, different experiences but just a little bit of familiarity. And Wei's book, of course, is incredible as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for those recommendations. I was just – I sent a link to Elise the other day about late bloomers and I said, ooh – I want to read this, so I'm glad to hear really that. Really yeah. good, yeah, <laughs> and really funny. Like it's just a really entertaining read. I'm, yeah, I, yeah. Add it to the ever-growing um, TBR pile. No, <laughs> and it feels like we should all have all of this time to read, but I'm finding it so hard to concentrate on reading as much as I want to be reading. My, I don't know mm. something about, particularly the times that we've been in lockdown. I feel like that's that's a really hard thing to do. Yeah, absolutely, and I feel like. I only, as we've talked about before, I only want specific books. I've tried to read this sci-fi book recently. <laughs> I need something different than romance. I'll try this. And I'm like, I just, I just don't want this right now. <laughs> yeah. It's been a long time since I've read any like highbrow literature or any, any kind of classic books. Cause I used to try to get through some of those and I just don't try anymore. I'm, I just read what I've want to read and what I know is going to be interesting to me and don't let anyone else's judgments dictate what I think I should read. Yeah. And I found short stories and essays. So that's why Clem's book is good in essays because they are sort of more bite-sized pieces. So Mm -hmm. if you put a book down and then forget about it for a while, which is something that I often do, you're not trying to catch up every time you pick it up. You can just pick it up and you can still enjoy it in those sort of, yeah, more smaller pieces. Agreed. And our final, I suppose, non-spoiler question we wanted to ask you um, is about how you look after yourself um, and what does self-care mean for you? Yeah, so I'm finding, I guess, particularly in the last couple of months that self-care can be really different than what I want to be doing. And so that's the hardest part because 
um, my brain needs downtime and I need alone time. I need um, to rest. Time in nature is really important to me as a sensory kind of a reset. Um, so the, being close to the forest and, and the beach has been really positive for my mental health. But I also, you know, love my friends and family and, and want to to plan wonderful things and catch-ups and that kind of thing. So my hardest struggle is to, to treat self-care and treat that downtime as something to be scheduled in that's non-negotiable and not to overfill my schedule on my weekends, especially around book publication because there are things that pop up and there's just, you know, there's sort of an undercurrent of work um, that needs to be stayed on top of and, you know, my daughter's on school holidays as well. So, yeah, just just making sure that I plan for downtime for my brain so that I don't hit those stress levels um, where, you know, burnout and meltdown and all those kinds of things um, that aren't comfortable and aren't nice to be and I need to pre-plan so I don't find myself there. Yeah, lovely. I think that's all of our non-spoiler questions. We'll be diving more into please don't hug me with the spoilery questions next. Yes. Yeah. Um, just before we do that, everyone go check out Social Cue. By the time this episode comes out, it will, of course, be post book launch and released and everything so mm-hmm. yeah make sure to go and grab a copy listeners i'm urging you <laughs> and prefer uh, ideally support your local bookshops and order from them ideally yes yeah. <laughs> as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm Barbara. And I'm Lauren. We are the hosts of Badass Literature Society, a book review podcast where we take book recommendations from listeners like you, read them, and then discuss them on our show. Join us once a month as we dive into the books you picked and talk about them. And don't miss our bonus episodes covering all sorts of random bookish topics that come out in between reviews. Don't worry, if you want to read one of the books, the first part of each episode is designated spoiler-free, so you can listen and see if you'd like to read it, and then come back and listen to the rest later. You can find Badass Literature Society on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, and anywhere else you like to listen. Now, back to the show. All right, well, let's dive into some more spoilery questions about Please Don't Hug Me. Um, so the first question we wanted to ask was about the therapy that Erin um, experiences in the book. So uh, as psychologists, we're always interested in how therapy is represented on the page or on the screen. And in Please Don't Hug Me, Erin sees Dr. Lim. And I guess we had some kind of mixed feelings <laughs> about this yeah. uh, therapy that Erin undertakes. So sometimes it felt helpful, but often felt maybe like they didn't have the best working relationship or maybe not the right fish. Um, so I'm wondering about your your views, your opinions about Dr. Lim and Erin and their therapeutic relationship and what they were going through. Yeah. Um, this is so exciting to be able to discuss spoilery things because yes. I've been so careful in all other interviews <laughs> to be vague and to not dive into it. So this is exciting. Thank you. Um, but I'm a massive advocate for therapy, obviously. I think everybody could benefit from it and I have benefited from it hugely in my life. So I guess with Dr. Lim, I wanted to capture a transitional phase. I think a lot of autistic people, when they're children, their parent um, usually chooses their psychologist, and it might be a relationship that started when they're preteen or or quite young. Um, And by the time, you know, a person is in their sort of late teens, it might not necessarily still be the best fit. Um, Mm -hmm. I think because autistic people, you know, are trained 
in the world um, in compliance, whether that's through therapies like ABA or whether that's more um, subtle in even, you know, being undiagnosed and um, being told that your experience of moving through the world is not the right one, sort of your sensory experiences are downplayed, you know, that's not too bright, that's not too loud, that doesn't hurt, you know, you're taught um, not to trust your own experiences Mm. and your own feelings. So I think self-advocacy can be really hard because um, you're trained not to listen to your own voice or not to listen to your gut feelings. So I think, well, I think Dr. Lim's been really helpful for Erin and particularly a lot of people have contacted me about the letter writing um, process and as something that they either did with with their therapist or themselves as a way of processing grief. Um, That obviously was a really positive reaction from a lot of people. Um, but there, there is a little bit of that sort of disconnect sometimes with a session where I think Erin feels maybe like Dr. Lim might be more focused on having a point to say as opposed to the connection between them perhaps. And I, I imagine Erin, you know, by the end of the novel, she's in a very different place and she's stronger in her feelings, like her sense of self. So I imagine in the new year post high school, she might find herself um, somebody new to, to see that might be perhaps more in line with where she's headed. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's that's lovely. Hopefully she'll find someone yeah. <laughs> who fits well. But that what you mentioned there about how Dr. Lim has a point to make and doesn't perhaps spend as much time connecting or validating what was going on for Erin really came through in the book, I felt, especially after that um, incident with her friends where she called them sluts, I think. And I felt like Dr. Lim could have acknowledged what was going on for her more than trying to sort of problem solve the situation. Yeah. And I think that, um, I I don't know, obviously it's not autism specific, but Mm -hmm. a lot of, like we're seeing a lot of Erin's internal monologue. So we're Mm -hmm. knowing her emotional landscape a lot more than probably Dr. Mm -hmm. Lim does, Mm -hmm. especially, I don't know. I have found myself in, in, relationships where I'm almost trying to not impress my therapist but like please her and like say the right thing and do the right thing so I don't think that she's being entirely honest in that relationship so therefore Mm. she's not able to get out of it as much as she could if if she was laying it out a little bit more clearly I think yeah one of the things I did really like about the representation of therapy was that the challenges that were portrayed I felt were quite subtle as well so it wasn't that Dr. Lim was parading around waving red flags, but it was more <laughs> that <laughs> maybe there were some, I don't know, orange flags that were, <laughs> were there. So I just, yeah, as a therapist as well, reading it, I was thinking, oh, that's not both not what I would want to say if I were Erin's therapist, but also not what I would want to hear if I were Erin. And of course, as therapists, we do get things wrong sometimes. We do make mistakes or sometimes not validate things or not have the right approach, but it felt like it was happening enough times that if I were Erin, once I had the capacity to make a decision about who I would see as a therapist, if I wanted to continue, I probably wouldn't want to keep seeing Dr. Lim. Maybe that had just passed its uh, best by date, that therapy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think often too with, um, I think Erin's mom has been sold a little bit of that autism as a tragedy narrative. Like I think she's coming out of it, but she is very much like, um, I'm going to heal this with mm-hmm. green smoothies and, and doing everything that she reads, I guess, <laughs> online to try and help. So I think a lot of probably the established relationship with Dr. Lim has come from discussions probably with her, her mum as mm-hmm. opposed to directly. Uh, that's my experience um, anyway. Now as, I guess, as a mother to an autistic child, I'm seeing it from that sort of perspective as well. But, um, yeah, I think... I think there is room for Erin to to meet someone and see someone on her own terms and to sort of set the landscape herself a little bit more in the future. Yeah. We were also interested in the different friendships in the book. So especially there are friendships between Erin and Dee and Erin and Aggie. In your view, what are some of the key differences between those two friendships? I, I really enjoyed writing both Dee and Aggie. And I think, um, again, I think Erin's in this transitional phase. So I think Dee has been this wonderful friend that she's had since primary school and she's supported Erin through a lot. Um, Dee is, I guess, more a part of the social hierarchy of high school and she strives to fit into that, whereas Erin obviously strives to fit into that 
as well, but she's not able to manage it. So there's conflict there. Um, Dee can be casually cruel, I think, to Erin mm-hmm. sometimes without even realizing it. But then Erin, I think, is so fixed on how she imagines life after high school going. And she's got this idea of her and Dee getting an apartment and going to uni. And I don't think that she's necessarily listening or taking in what Dee wants to do um, after high school. And she's trying to tell her that that's kind of not the the way she plans the next year going. And Erin's quite fixated on that. Um, whereas with Aggie, I think that's a friendship that's free of the social constructs of high school. Um, and Aggie is someone who is entirely themselves. And I think that's really um, helpful to Erin uh, at the time. She's direct and open with Erin as well, where, you know, she says what she thinks. And so that friendship, I think, has the capa- the ability to stand the test of time because it's an authentic connection. And it is, for me anyway, I found that the friendships in my life that have lasted um, longer periods of time have been with people who are naturally more inclined to be direct or to tell you how they're feeling or to tell you if you've hurt their feelings um, or to tell you if there's been some kind of a social misstep, what it is and, and how it's impacted them as opposed to the people that might be more inclined to not address it directly but then give you subtle signs and that can be really confusing if you're not able to read those signs to just you, you can feel the the change in um, the air but you can't quite put your finger on what what's wrong so mm-hmm. yeah I think I, I enjoyed the contrast of those two friendships and I really didn't want to write them as this one is all good and this one is all bad because I don't think that would be um, realistic yeah and uh when I was reading the book as well my first thought when I started to notice some of those challenges with Dee and Erin's friendships was oh I I wonder if this friendship is going to end by the end of the book if there is going to be a blowout and Erin will end the friendship or Dee will end the friendship or something like that and I really appreciated that it things did kind of <laughs> there was a blow up, of course. There were there were challenges, um, but I was glad that it wasn't just a, everything was cut off and that she was seen as being a bad friend, and that was the end of that because that's not how people work in real life. We're a lot more complicated. Yeah, and I just think I don't know. I think that Erin wasn't um, meeting Dee's friendship yeah. needs in a lot of ways in some you know instances as well. So I more saw that as I think after the book, Dee might go off and do her thing and do her traveling and that kind of thing. And maybe they will reconnect after that and maybe they won't, but I don't think it was yet a hard and fast. We're not friends anymore. Or or one person is in the wrong and one person is in the right because that hasn't been my experience of friendship (laughs) or the ones that have lasted or the ones that, that have sort of faded away. It's, it's been more complicated than that. Like you said. But I feel that, yeah, the friendship with Aggie potentially has more of that healthy base that maybe that that would be a friendship that might last, for example, longer into Erin's adulthood than Dee's friendships. But, you know, I'm speculating. I know their characters yeah, in the book. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to speculate about what they're doing after the book ends. So that's, yeah. Yeah, that's fine. And I think, yeah, I think her friendship with Aggie, um, it has started from a place where Erin kind of is learning who she is a little bit more. So she's not feeling like she has to stay in the same friendship dynamic that she had when she was younger, which I think sometimes can happen and is what happened with Dee is they, the sort of rules for how their friendship worked were formed back in, you know, when they were seven or eight or however old they were when they met and they've kind of struggled to get out of that sort of dynamic. Yeah. yeah. And what I love about your writing is that all the side characters feel complex as well, even though we don't get that insight into their internal life the way we do with Erin because Erin's the one narrating. But um, I get the sense that there's so much more to do than what she's perhaps letting on to Erin as well, like or her family situation. Uh, and that there are, when she is casually cruel, you can see where that's coming from, even if it's not forgivable and or excusable. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. That was a, a real challenge, particularly because of the letter writing form and the mm-hmm. um, constraints of that meant that it was hard to explore. You were only exploring the other characters' um, emotional landscape through the way Erin saw it and, and because Erin, you know, because of the state that she's in and, and what she's going through herself 
her vision or view of what the other person is experiencing might not necessarily be accurate to what's going on internally for them. So it was a challenge, but it was a really a fun challenge, I guess, yeah, to yeah. because there are times I think when you can tell that Erin's got it wrong in her reading yeah. of somebody else. So yeah, just making sure yeah. that the reader could pick up on that, I guess. Yeah. That was especially um as a reader, fun to f- work out, I suppose, in terms of her brother, the way that she was, I guess, because it, she was also working out whether her own perceptions of him were accurate when he, when he was still alive. I had to pause for a second there because I was like, spoiler alert. <laughs> we're we're taking yeah. spoilers now. <laughs> but yeah, I thought, you know, I really enjoyed trying to put together a picture of Rudy from Erin trying to do the same thing. Yeah, I think the absence of him made it easier for her to explore who he was as a full person, whereas I don't think she would be asking those questions or, or having those thoughts and conversations, I guess, within herself um, about him and his motivations if he had been there because they kind of um, their relationship was one of sort of sibling conflict and, and maybe sort of living together and annoying each other and I think Rudy thought with Erin's support needs that she was kind of getting spoiled or pampered by their parents or being sort of favourite child kind of because she needed the most attention often. So I think she was only able to start asking those questions when Rudy was removed from the story. (laughs) And uh, speaking of Rudy's death as well, we, of course, learn only two-thirds or so of the way through the story that um, Rudy did pass away before the novel happened. Had you always planned for this death to be revealed quite late in the story Um, or was that a decision that was made later on? (laughs) What what led to that Um, decision? Yeah, I I played around a little bit about how that was revealed and the way that that was represented. But it's funny because people have said to me like, oh, I I picked the spoiler or I didn't pick the twist or, (laughs) and I I didn't write about, I didn't set out to write a book with a twist necessarily. It was more that I was trying to represent um, my own delays in processing big emotional things, especially Mm -hmm. grief, particularly Mm -hmm. grief um, and how my brain will circle around and around and around the thing but not process it and it can take months or years um, to get to the point where I'm actually ready to face it in a in a head-on kind of a way. So I wanted the way that Erin writes the letters to be circling around the issue in a similar way because that felt to me representative of, of my emotional processing. So I had the first couple of drafts that were written as diary entries as opposed to um, to letters. And so what happens to Rudy and his death, it was kind of happening in real time at the start, but it was still not being, um, still not happening till kind of that two thirds or past halfway mark anyway. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that um, she was writing to someone because it needed to be someone that she felt comfortable speaking in a really candid kind of open honest way but um that wouldn't be I guess possible if Rudy was still around um so that just kind of the more I play with it and then I realized she was writing letters and then I realized that person was Rudy and then I just kind of reframed the timeline and put put it a year in the past so that because I feel like I don't know for me especially with grief and loss there's something about the one year mark coming, you know, approaching and getting through that, that feels really big, I guess. So that was something that I thought would be a good, um, yeah, just a good sort of turning point for Erin to not like, oh, a year's passed and everything's mm-hmm. better and she's fine, but more that she wasn't able to face it for that whole time. Um, and it wasn't until after the ritual of that memorial that, that she's, I guess, or the lead up to that, that she was able to, to face it. Yeah, it definitely was really interesting to see how Erin um, processed everything on the page as well and reading the letters too. So you know, I, I went into the story and my first thought at, within the first couple of chapters or first couple of letters was Rudy's dead, isn't he? And then <laughs> after a while I thought, no, actually I think he's alive. He's just 
gone off and maybe lost contact or something. And then of course, finding out down the track that he did pass away. So I kind of had both experiences where I predicted (laughs) it and then went back on my prediction. But anyway, Um, so yeah, to see how she was writing to her brother and how she wasn't explicit in her language and writing to him as if he were still alive, sort of skirting around what happened and maybe not being even able to write about it directly, even in this private letter in this kind of format. So um, almost like avoiding the situation. And that feels very real to me um, in terms of the experience of grief is you know, perhaps not not denying it, but maybe just not having the emotional space to to be talking about it, to be putting words on a page like that. I thought yeah. Yeah, it was really nice to see Erin's journey with that processing through the book. Yeah, I think she definitely compartmentalised it and um, didn't let herself open that particular door very often and then, you know, like as she got a little bit more comfortable with smaller parts of it, it sort of let her get to the point where she was able to, I guess, face the whole of it. Um, but that, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm the person that, you know, at a funeral or at something sad, when something sad happens, I'm I'm not at a place to cry about that yeah. because I haven't emotionally processed it. It's going to be weeks or months down the track when um, I've circled around it enough times to actually process it that, that grief is really going to hit. So I think um, that's kind of, and that's always been something that people have pointed out to me as being, you know, emotionless or like, I can't believe you didn't cry about that. Um, So I think that was a personal sort of something that I brought to that story and wanting to, to, I guess, show underneath everything that is like the emotional landscape that is happening. People think, you know, autistic people don't feel empathy or autistic people don't feel this or that um showing what goes on internally as opposed to what they might show other people the other thing i enjoyed about the letter format is the way she hints at the family dynamic because um i don't think it was ever spelled out completely but i think dad had a previous relationship with a daughter that he never told them about until she showed up and when Amy first showed up, I was like, who's Amy? <laughs> I kept reading, I was like, oh, okay. And I like that that was never, you know, we were never given an exposition about it. But over the course of the book, I started to be able to put together what the family history is and how that might have affected Rudy in ways that Aaron might not have fully processed or understood. Yeah, I, I I find it really sibling dynamics are my, one of my favorite things to read and to write and to sort of think about and investigate. And I just find those dynamics to be so interesting because they're people that you spend such a huge part of your life with, you know, every day growing up and, and depending on, you know, into the future and what those relationships look like. But I just think that to me is really interesting emotional space to explore. Absolutely. We do have one final question for this section of the interview, which is about community. Um, So at the end of the book, we get the sense that Erin is starting to connect with others online, having written a blog post and starting to get some really positive comments coming through um, in terms of other people who, who get it, who understand what it's like to be autistic. I was wondering if you've drawn from your own experiences here at all with autistic people that you might have found online yeah definitely I think just because I was just processing that diagnosis myself I was just discovering Mm. this sort of autistic community online and on Twitter that can be the hashtag actually autistic or um, Instagram there's a really strong um, network and community and I'm not on TikTok but I know there is a really strong sort of component of uh, community there as well Um, and I just think when you're in high school and you've I don't know, you feel like you're the only one going through this, whether it's being autistic or whatever it is, grief, loss, being different in some other way. Um, Finding community is the most affirming thing it has been for me and I know that it has been for for lots of other people that I've spoken to and that, um, you know, there isn't a lot of support for autistic people, particularly once they become adults unless their support needs are quite high or they have other disabilities. So, um the, the community um, online and also in person, I guess, um, can be the sort of saving grace or the only thing that you have to connect to once you've, yeah, once you've left school and support um, environment. So I think, yeah, I wanted to celebrate that, you know, so many aspects of my experiences growing up have been uh, 
contextualized by other people sharing their experiences and me get a light bulb kind of moment of going, ah, oh, that happened to me too. I didn't realize that was connected to being autistic because you kind of just think of that I mucked that up or I made that mistake or I was really bad at that. And then you kind of realize that there's this wider community of people who have also experienced similar things or similar feelings. And yeah, it's the best. Amazing. Yeah. Lovely. Well, I think that's all of our questions, unless you have another one in mind, Elise. <laughs> no, I think we've um, probably delved far enough into the spoilers for, <laughs> for now. Uh, thank you so much, Kay, for joining us and your very thoughtful and interesting um, responses to our questions. It's not every day that we actually get to sit down with an author and be like, so what does this mean in the book? Can you tell us about this and everything? So, yeah, really nice to have that experience from our point it's- of view. It's been so much fun. Thank you. I mean, I've been having these conversations sort of one-on-one with people after they've read the book, but it's nice to be able to discuss it and not feel like I have to self-censor because I am like the Mm. oversharing, blurted all out person. So that's been a real challenge (laughs) this process. So thank you for giving me the space. It's been lovely. We love it. We love oversharing here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And as we said before, we're super excited for Social Cue. Can't wait to read it. And Elise and I will probably have a lot of discussions as well about <laughs> what, what, what things mean in, in that book too. I'm sure. <laughs> that wraps up our interview. And what a pleasure that was to have Kate on, of course. So good. Yeah. So now we'll just quickly mention what's going up on the blog post on our website to link in with this episode. Yeah, so on our website, some of the resources we will link to include the resources we already included as part of our review around autism spectrum disorder. We'll also include Kay's website and social media accounts. And we'll include some links to the books that Kay recommended, including Peter Liars Rating Normal, Late Bloomer, and How It Feels to Float. And of course, we'll link to where to find Kay's books, Please Don't Hug Me, and her new novel, Social Cue. And that wraps us up for today. Please remember to subscribe and follow us to keep up to date and to know when our new episodes are posted. Next episode is our final review episode for season Mm. two. Mm. So you don't want to miss that. Of course not. (laughs) Season finale. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be big. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep. So for all the resources we've mentioned, check out our website, novelfeelings.com, where we post episode summaries, links to further reading for each episode, as well as information about getting support for you or someone you care about. And if you like us, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to ask us a question or just chat, you can send us a message via our website or you can keep up to date with us on social media. At the moment, we are on Instagram, Twitter and Goodreads. Find us through at novel underscore feelings. And you can also find me on Bookstagram at paved with books with an extra S. Thank you so much for tuning into this interview and a big thank you, Kay, if you are listening. So thank you, Kay, for joining us too. We totally appreciate it. Yes, definitely. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.